Amen. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for your word. We ask that you'd help us now. In Christ's good name, amen. So you'll be happy to know that I was supposed to cover verses 3 through 9, and as I was studying and preparing, I just didn't see how I could possibly get it all covered today. So we're only doing three verses, but don't get your hopes up. That doesn't mean I'm going to be shorter. Uh, That just means that we're going to be able to cover it in a reasonable amount of time. This passage, um, thinking about it and and pondering it, trying to, to get at the heart of it, is the very first verse. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This truth, this statement, this is sort of the umbrella that embodies every verse that we're going to cover today. As a way of reminder, uh, we were introduced two weeks ago to the author, the very first verse, Peter, an apostle of Christ. We looked at his life. He was a zealous guy, often fell short of his zeal, uh, walked out to Jesus on the water, and yet he sank. We kind of dismiss his walking on water, but two people have walked on water in human history, Jesus and Peter. He walked on water in his great faith. Uh, we sort of knock him because he sank towards the end. The reality is I've been trying to walk on water for years. Literally, I think every time I jump in a pool, I think maybe this time. Maybe this time. No, it's never happened. This is a, on, on Jesus' last day on earth when he begins to reveal to them and say, I'm, I, I'm going to my death. Peter says, never, Lord, I will die for you. Peter says, before the sun even rises, you'll have denied me three times. And so this is a man who knew Christ, who walked with him. Following his death, burial, and resurrection, everything changed. And now Peter's older. And we see in verse, the second part of verses 1 and 2, that he writes this letter to chosen aliens, chosen sojourners. Uh, these are believers who are scattered amongst modern-day Turkey. If we can go to the next verse, please, just really quick, um, just to remind ourselves here. Um, in the top left corner of the slide, you'll see Rome. Rome is where Peter wrote from. During this time, Nero had become the new emperor, and his rage and wrath was beginning to unfold. It only slightly began to unfold uh, to Turkey, But in Rome, it was evident that this guy was a crazy man. And he would have many Christians executed uh, through a variety of ways. Uh, In the stadiums, they would throw Christians to wild beasts to be destroyed. He would host parties. This is before electricity. So in order to light the parties, he would hang Christians from a stake, set them afire to, to, to bring illumination to the party. And his wrath was coming. And so Peter writes to these believers who are scattered in modern-day Turkey where all of the arrows are pointed. He doesn't list cities, he lists regions. And so in this region, there were both Jewish believers and Gentile believers, which, which the opening is sort of strange. He says, you chosen aliens, you're chosen sojourners, you're chosen exiles. But many of these people were actually from the location that they were in at the time of writing. So it's not that they were necessarily scattered and found themselves in a a different country that they were raised. Peter, through this letter, is is going to continue to to point out that the follower of Christ gets citizenship in heaven. And as we earn our citizenship in heaven, earning is probably a bad term, as we're granted our citizenship in heaven through faith in Christ, suddenly the earthly realm, we're sort of different. Our new nature is at, at war or at, it, it, there's, there's tension. 
Because the way the world thinks isn't the way God thinks. And so he says, you're, there's, you're, at, you're not at home, at your home, now that you're in Christ. And at the very end of verse 2, he says, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. You can go back to the verses, please. And in today's section, it, it, it might be a little strange if you're here and you're not a Christian. I'll never forget um, early in my Christian life, I was 22, I, had, I don't know exactly when I'd become a Christian. I was sort of raised, forced to go into church, but I wasn't a Christian then. I would have identified with Christianity, but I wasn't really a Christian. And then at 22, when my friend asked me to go to church, well, he nagged me over and over and over again, and I finally conceded to go because there were free pizza and the guy was a pro surfer, that I would go to church on Tuesday nights. And so the first few months, it was a while, I remember getting there, say it started at 7, we would get there at like 6.55 and we would be in the lobby. And there'd be a group of people kind of huddled around in the front. And I thought they were the weirdest, strangest people. And my friend's like, you can come in, it's no big deal. I'm like, what are those people doing? Like, they're praying. I'm like, what kind of hocus pocus stuff are you guys into around here? Like, this is sort of... I'll just wait till seven, till the, till everything begins. I don't. I wanted. It was just awkward. And then they would play music. They would they would sing songs, and that was strange to me early on. And even in my church upbringing, we would always go to the very earliest service at seven a.m. when there was no music, so we could get in out and do our duty. And and uh, and so now they're like singing, but it wasn't going like going to a concert. It was this something is different about these people. And, and, and so with that sort of background, I, all of 1 Peter is written to believers. And so if you're not a believer, it can get sort of, well, how does this fit? And so today we will have a chance to sort of look at Christianity 101 and how it fits in the big picture. I don't want to leave out the main thing of, of Christianity in this. But Peter starts his, his opening praise. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This word blessed is where we get the words eulogy from, which means to speak well of, sort of to praise. And so he says, praise or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, he's not writing during a time or a season when everything's going great for these Christians. Things are going really bad, and they're about to get worse this storm cloud is on the horizon. Peter is in Rome, and he can see this, this cloud of rage and destruction that's heading towards, basically, Christianity at large. And yet, in the midst of this storm, he starts with this praising the Father, adoration. And I think that there's a great application here for us. Whenever you start your prayers, we should start with just focusing on praising God. The first thing he begins to praise him with is according to his great mercy. So, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, Lord, we can say, Lord, we thank you for your great mercy. Lord, we thank you for your great love. Lord, we thank you for your great provision. Lord, we thank you that you're all-knowing, that you're sovereign, that you're in control. When you launch your prayers with this focusing and meditating upon who God is, do you think that sort of adjusts how you enter into a prayer? It absolutely does. It backs up and it, you sort of realize how big God is. And suddenly then the situation you're facing is kept in focus because you see who God is. And it strikes me as interesting that the very first thing, as blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, that the Apostle Peter, the one attribute that really jumps out at him is God's mercy, God's mercifulness. Mercy has been defined simply as withholding something that you don't, or wait, that's grace. Mercy, okay, let, let me start over. Grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting something that you deserve. And so it strikes me that Peter, thinking upon his life, thinking about his great zeal, 
All of the things that he said he would do, he would go to his death as they arrested Jesus. He cut the ear off the soldier trying to arrest him. Jesus heals the ear and kind of gives a little message to Peter. Peter follows him all the way to the arrest saying, I will go and die with him. Then he denies the Lord, no, even knowing the Lord once, he, then a second time. And then on the third time, he makes a vow before God saying, I swear to God, I don't even know Jesus. That's bad. And then it says he goes off and he uses profanity to further distance himself. And it was at that point that the rooster crowed. And we're told there that basically that Peter was just decimated, that his everything just crumbled within him because he realized that all of these great promises he'd made to the Lord, when that rooster crowed, or is it cocked, whatever the rooster did when he made the cock-a-doodle-doo sound, Peter knew at that moment that I failed him. I'm done, I failed enough. And I think that Peter at that point thought that he was had failed to the point where he was not redeemable, that Jesus was done fully at that point. And then we see the story at the very end of John where Peter's fishing all night. He hops off the boat. Jesus makes, makes a little, there's a little campfire with some fish and Jesus begins to restore Peter. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you even like me? Yes, Lord. And Jesus over and over says, tend to my sheep, tend to my sheep, tend to my sheep. This is a man who'd failed over and over and over again. And that the Lord continued to restore. And as Peter now is an older man writing to Christ's church, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy. It reminds me of Romans 2.4, which says, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? And I believe that when we approach God, thanking him for his mercy, it changes our whole posture. It changes our whole attitude of going before the Lord. You know, the Bible describes God as love, and that's something that we really like to think about, oh, that God is loving, and he is loving. The Bible makes it clear. But there's another, there's just, when you go before God, Lord, thank you for having mercy on me. Lord, thank you for your great mercifulness. You have bestowed upon me more than I ever deserved. Lord, you withheld the wrath that was due me to think that Christ would go in my place and suffer the wrath of God as a consequence of my sin, your whole attitude of how you approach God changes. And I love that Peter starts this letter as they're about to go through this horrible trial. Blessed be the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. I've been studying this passage for some time now. I was, to be honest, I was sort of thankful that Andreas was willing to preach last week because it bought me some time. You don't get long, far into Peter to start realizing that there's some, there's some theological concepts that have turned into sort of uh, spiritual wars within the Christian community, which I... I do my best not to get into the, the the squabbles. But I see this and I think, oh man, I'm going to have to sort of do some digging. I'm going to be kind of be pressed. Like it's like it, with his great mercy has caused us to be born again. And so I just skim it through Peter. I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to like sort of deal with this. And just just to be totally upright, I, I you know, I go through seminary, they, they have one theological bent, I have friends in other theological camps, and there's a bunch of different theological camps. And what tends to happen is we read the scripture, and we see a truth, and there seems to be another statement, but that seems to conflict with this other statement, but people like certainty over truth. And so we tend to sort of fall into our camps, and we start to attack other camps. 
and I'm not going to do, I, I kind of left seminary going, I'm a decaf a whole bunch of things. Like I fall into a bunch of theological camps. I sort of, I see the truth here. I see the truth here. Um, just because well, I thought we had a choice. I thought when I came to accept Christ as my Savior, I thought that there was like a, a choice there. So I read this and I kind of is like, he caused us to be born again. How am I going to handle that? See, my issue is not, I don't have a, I don't have an axe to grind. My only axe to grind is what does the Bible say? I don't care. I should be. I don't care about winning the argument. I only want to know what the Scripture says. And, and so, in wrestling through this, like what what is this saying? And for the four of you that care, <laughs> don't get all riled up around this term. Just don't let this phrase throw you for a loop. This phrase caused you to be born again is one word in the Greek. This word in the Greek is only used two times in the whole New Testament, and it's used in this verse and down in verse 23. Peter will use it the second time. The New Living Translation translates this phrase like this, it is by his great mercy that we have been born again. The NIV says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth. The New King James says, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again. The idea is this sort of rebirth, to be born again. There's heavy, heavy, heavy uh, similarities to what this word is expressing to that which Jesus taught in John chapter 3. I'll never forget the first time I heard the term born again. I don't know how old I, I was exactly, but I'll never forget the moment. I was, I was somewhere between sixth grade and probably eighth grade. I had been drugged to this dinner party that it was, I remember it was in the afternoon. I can see the sunshine. It was outside. There was good food. I was kind of enjoying myself. It was an adult party, and I was just a kid that my main responsibility was to, to be seen and not heard and, and eat as much food as I wanted. So I was pretty happy, and I'm just like, there was this guy, like a Jamaican-looking guy, and he was playing the congas because they had like live music. And I remember he was talking to somebody along the way, and I'm just you know munching on my like cookie or whatever. And somebody had said something to him, but I didn't catch what that was. And he said, "Oh, I'm a born again Christian." And I was like, "What kind of freak is this over here? Like born again Christian? This is weird." And he began talking, and I just it had this impact on me. Like, well, I've heard of Christianity, but I've never heard this idea. Of what's a born again Christianity? Is this some sort of like new agey like weirdness about Christianity? And then from there, I remember sort of hearing it. There were these Christians that I'm a born again Christian, and maybe you're like I was. I thought it was weird. You don't have to raise your hand. But the whole idea: what is a born again Christian? Well, in simple terms, just if you're a Christian. You're born again. I mean, that's, that's just the bottom line. If you've accepted Christ as, as Savior, you're a born-again Christian. You might not use that term. But it all goes back to John chapter 3. If you turn there with me, hold your place in Peter. We're going to bounce around a little bit here. But in John chapter 3, this is the story. And this is where the, the term being born again comes from Jesus. Jesus had been teaching. He'd been doing signs and wonders, all sorts of things. And in, as John chapter 3 opens up, uh, it's evening. And we read here in John chapter 3, verse 1, it says, now there was a, a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So here Nicodemus comes. There's great speculation. Why did he come at night? Was he in shy or was it just a busy day? This is a an opportunity he had to come to Jesus. This man was the spiritual leader in Israel, one of a very small group of people. He comes to Jesus, he introduces himself to Jesus, and he sort of postures himself with humility and respect for the Lord. He doesn't come like the others, attacking him, trying to trap him. He says, listen, the things that you do, the signs, that there's, it's clear you're of God. There's no question asked. 
And Jesus, being all-knowing, responds. And he says, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. I love Nicodemus' response. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born again, can he? Seems reasonable to me. This guy is probably 50, 60 years old. Jesus says nobody can see the kingdom of God unless he's been born again. The guy's like, how, how is this even possible? Like, I can't, as a 40-year-old man, hop back into my mother's womb and be born a second time. And even if it was possible, I'm pretty sure she would not be down with it. I mean, we've all seen women at, ten, like, well, they call it nine months, but it seems like it's more like 10 months. You know, if you do the math, it's much longer than... And they have like an 8 to 12 pound baby in there, and they're like ready for the baby to be born. I can't imagine a 200 pound man hopping into the womb. It would be like the ladies are looking at me like, Gunner, move on. <laughs> but this is a reasonable question. He's looking at Jesus. How, how in the world am I supposed to be born again? It's like a one time deal, Jesus. And Jesus answered in verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh and that which is born of the Spirit of Spirit. Do not be amazed at what I say to you. You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So everyone is born of the Spirit. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not understand these things. Jesus looks at him and says, you are the spiritual leader of Israel and you don't understand that part of the whole deal of religion is about relationship with the Father. And once somebody has a relationship with the Father, they're born again and now they can enter into these other relationships. And you're a leader spiritually and you don't get this most basic element. This is concerning. Because it's not about religion, it's about relationship. Protestants love saying that, and it's so true. It's not about cleaning yourself up. It's not about not swearing. I mean, all this stuff might follow. But it's that you're separated from God. God has gone out of his way to where you could come into a relationship with him restored. And Jesus is saying, this, brother, how are you missing this? Verse 11, he continues, Jesus speaking, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he, that's Jesus, who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in him, in Christ, have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That, that verse, John 3.16, is without question the most popular verse in the whole Bible, probably in all human... It's even at Raiders games when they kick the field goal that John 3.16 pops up. <laughs> And, and, and Jesus says this in the midst of the being born again. He's first saying that I'm coming, I'm going to give my life so that those who believe in me can have life. If we turn the page as we work our way back to, to Peter, we're going to stop at Acts chapter 2. And the reason I'm stopping here, I'm, I'm working through this issue, this caused us to be born again. Peter, in the context, he's praising God. He's saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who because of his great mercy caused us to be born again. So Jesus' whole born again issue goes back to John chapter 3. Then we follow the life of Jesus. He's going to be executed. He's going to be buried according to the scriptures for our sins. He's going to raise on the third day, and he's going to eventually ascend into heaven. 
before he ascends into heaven or right before he ascends into heaven, he looks at the apostles and he says, go to Jerusalem and wait. You shall receive the Holy Spirit and you're going to be you're going to give witness to me in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, and to the outermost part of the earth. So they go and they wait. What are we going to do? Acts chapter 2 unfolds with the Spirit coming upon the people that were waiting in the room. As the Spirit baptizes them, all of the people in the room supernaturally have the ability to speak in known languages that were unknown to them. People from around the world had descended upon Jerusalem that, that spoke all different kinds of languages. The Spirit comes, they begin speaking in these tongues, sharing about Christ. There's great, what in the world is going on? Peter stands up and he gives the first sermon. He goes through the whole sermon and we come to verse 36. He shares all about the history and he comes to the crux of the cross. And he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, that's Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus, whom you crucified, he basically goes for their jugular vein. Amen? Be back next Sunday? I don't know. I mean, I don't know what day of the week it was off the top of my head, but, but he finishes there. He like condemns those, you killed God. Amen. Have a nice week. And I mean, I love it. That's where he stops. And in verse 37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what should we do? Don't leave us. Hey, what do we do now? And Peter at that point essentially says, repent and be baptized. Give your life to the Lord. And we see that 3,000 individuals gave their life to the Lord and the church begins to flourish. If we'll turn with me, keep heading towards Peter and stop in Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, the Apostle Paul is writing. In verse 13, he says, In him, that's Jesus, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, the gospel Paul defines in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first four verses. He says, the gospel which I preach to you is that Jesus died according to scriptures for your sins. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again according to scriptures. And then he lists all of the people that he appeared before. And so Paul says, when you heard the gospel, simply that Jesus died for you, that your sin condemns you, Jesus went out of his way to pay the penalty and by you doing what here, verse 13, in him after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. So you read this and you think from a human perspective, from my perspective, it's all I have is that when I was going through my life, eventually I realized that my sin condemned, I, I was toast. And then over the course of many years, hearing about Jesus, hearing about Jesus, going to church, blah, 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 blah. Finally, at some point, it struck me that, no, Jesus died so that I could have life. I took that information in, and then I responded with belief. But then we turn our page, turn the page of the Bible in Ephesians, and you go to chapter 2, verse 4, and he, as he continues, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us even while we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the age, ages to come he might show surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And so here's the tension. Here's where our finite brains fail us. And the, the majesty and magnitude of God exceeds what we can possibly take in. And our propensity 
is to start picking sides and then going to war. And that's not what we're called to do as Christians. And so as we, we can go back to 1 Peter. So when I read this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again. I said, well, what does that mean? I felt like I had a, I felt like I had a say in the matter. But then when I read this, I go, oh, well, that's like at first glance, it doesn't make it seem like I had a, a say in the whole matter. But then I start digging deeper. And what does that word say? The word's only used twice. It, it refers to being born again. When I look up even bigger, I know that if you go with me to 2 Peter 2.1, which Peter writes later, over in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, it says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you, who secretly introduce destructive heresies. Fast forward, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. So there are people that are going to be going to hell who are teaching against the gospel against the things of God, against the things that Jesus did. But in the midst of that phrase, it says, who introduced destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. And so there seems to be this ability to sort of, to reject what Christ did for us. And so the way I've kind of sort of understood this is in this passage in particular, first, I didn't know if it was okay to use my thumb. I had to look down real quick, sorry. Um, it's okay to use your thumb. That's what Anna's dad does. I think I'm becoming my father-in-law. He says, first, I think first, I think this. And so when I did this, it freaked me. I'm like, why am I doing this? <laughs> like it, sorry. <laughs> first. As Peter is writing to believers, Peter is writing to those who have already responded to the gospel. Peter is writing to those who are facing great persecution. And so having believed, as we start to understand, I see that God is working behind the scenes. I recognize that my salvation has nothing, nothing, nothing at all to do with myself. I hear people say, oh, I shared Christ and I got that person saved. It's like, you had nothing to do with getting that person saved. Like, you might have been the, the, the tool that he used. I think of Acts chapter 17, verse 26, in my own life, in my own stubbornness, in my own resisting the gospel. And in this story in Acts 17, Peter's at, a, at, 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 at a Mars Hill. He'd seen all of the false gods lined up, and there was one that said to the unknown God, and Paul begins to share to these philosophers, and he says, well, I want to tell you about this unknown God. And he says, you know, from Adam and Eve, or from, you know, one man, all other humans descended and came. And God in his sovereignty has placed all humans in their, their, their boundaries, the time that they were born, the limitations that they had, it was all within God's plan. So while I was an accident to my dad on earth, I was not an accident to God the Father. In all of human history, I know that I entered this life at the appointed time and the boundary and location and wherever I've been able to do in this world, it's within the limitations that God has placed upon me. And he says, so that they might grope for him. So the way I've kind of understood it is that God is aggressively working behind the scenes to do everything to bring you to salvation. And yet there seems to be that we have this freedom to reject it. But even when you respond, that doesn't mean that you did anything. One of my favorite shows, you guys probably know, I've told the story a whole bunch of times, The Deadliest Catch. I love The Deadliest Catch. I absolutely love, I mean, as a guy with my background of doing like hard sort of crazy stuff, I've been awake for six days. I don't see how they do it in the Bering Sea. I think those captains are crazy. Like the things that they ask these guys to do like six days straight in the Bering Sea with these huge waves, like ice forming, that if you fall overboard, you have three minutes before you die. It's just cool. 
Like there's a side of me that wants to go to Alaska just to give it a shot. Like, but I know I'd be the guy that quits and I don't want to be that guy on film. And so there was one episode where they're pulling out, a storm begins to hit, but all the fleet is going out of the harbor. They've been, they, I mean, they're, they're probably 20 miles out. And the guy falls overboard. And the one boat couldn't swing around in time. They put a distress call out. The second boat came by. They find the guy. They're able to throw a life ring to him. They brought him onto the boat. They stripped him down naked, and he's in the galley, which is the kitchen for you land lovers. They put a big blanket around him, and they give him a coffee. He's shaking so bad that this burning hot coffee is spilling all over him. And he just kept saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You saved me. You saved me. I was dead. And I liken his reaching out to that lifeline as his faith, his, his decision, his belief. He did nothing to save himself. He did absolutely nothing. Just because he grabs on a life ring, he's still dead. It's only because the fishermen who threw that, they did everything. And I see Peter who says this, for those of us who are Christians, the only reason that you know anything about God that you can perceive who he is, it's because he made the first step. He made the first step. He revealed himself through creation. He's been working on you to lead you to a place where you would respond to him. He did everything. And even the act of salvation, you just can't do it. The only reason that we've been saved is because of his great mercy, the work that Jesus did on the cross, and it's been imputed to us. Our account has been credited with his work. Thank you, Alberto. He likes it. So through this, Peter is praising the Father. The first thing he says is because of your great mercy, Peter recognizes that what he deserves is the wrath of God for his sin, for his iniquity. But what he got was mercy. Never start playing the game of asking for fairness with God. We don't want fair. We want mercy. We want grace. Has caused us to be born again to something. The first thing is to this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To be in a world without hope is is nothing like we have hope the only hope we have is that jesus rose from the dead to save time i'll just refer to it but in first corinthians chapter 15 it's up there the two verses paul after describing the gospel pointing to all of the people who saw and touched and felt the risen christ says that if jesus didn't rise from the dead everything that we're doing is in vain there, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, there's no reason for you guys to be in church. I, I, normally, I would say oh, you should be out watching football. I guess there's baseball going on, but with the World Cup, I even started baseball. Like, there's the beach. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, you're wasting your time being here. And, and the reality is, if you're here saying that he rose from the dead, thinking, well, at least I'm getting a, a placebo in this life that I feel better, Paul goes on to say, I think it's in verse 19, if it's really small up there, the... 19, yeah? He says, we of all men should be most pitied. That there's no, if, if he didn't raise, there's, it, there's nothing. But the reality is there's evidence. There's testimony of those that would give their life for Christ in this testimony. There's all sorts of history. There's a lack of a body. And so we have hope in the resurrection. It changes everything. And then he says, to obtain an inheritance. Now, this whole idea of inheritance is sort of strange because when we think of inheritance in this life, what do we think? We think somebody died, we get all their stuff until we die, and then that stuff remains because when you die, you can't take anything with you. Now, the difference with this inheritance is you die and then you get the stuff. It has nothing to do with this life. Peter says, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection to obtain this inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. If you'll turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. Keep your place in Peter. 
And then also be prepared to hold your place in Matthew because we'll come back to Matthew. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, we're going to enter the location near the Sea of Galilee. On the southwestern edge, or no, no, north, northwest of the Sea of Galilee, there's a hill. It's where Jesus gave the Sermon of the Beatitudes or the Sermon on the Mount. Peter was there. And during the Sermon of the Mount, listen what Jesus says. He says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Keep your place in Matthew. Go back to 1 Peter. And so Peter describes that we have this inheritance looking forward. This inheritance is very different from any inheritance that we could receive on the earth. The inheritance that we get on this earth, it's perishable. It goes away. People can steal it. Peter says we look to this inheritance which we've received in Christ. It's imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away. And I can't tell you much more than that. All I have is this hope that I know that there, there's something great waiting. I mean, there's Jesus, and that's great enough. There's nothing else, but there's, there's mention all through the New Testament that, that like, really all we need is Jesus, but then there's other stuff. I think of John chapter 14, in my mansion there are many places, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. There's talk of there's something there, but it's not here. And Peter is praising God for this great hope reserved in heaven for you. Who's the you? The you is back to chapter the very first two verses. There are these chosen saints that have been scattered. I think it's fair and reasonable and sound interpretation to say that the you is all Christians, those who have trusted in Christ, all believers the church and the church past, that there, there's this heaven reserved for us. And studying this this week, in the last 10 days with George's passing and then Evie's passing, I've just had this hilarious picture in my mind. I mean, hilarious in a good way. I see George getting to heaven going, I got reservations for two. <laughs> okay, we got your reservations are over here. Do you know where your date is? Oh, she's always running late. She'll be here in a couple of days. <laughs> Then Evie shows up, and then they have their table or their reservation. It's beautiful. I don't say this to make light, but I, if you knew George, you know, ever since I knew him, he was longing to make his reservation, and so was Evie. It's reserved for us. And then he says, who? The you then becomes the who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter knew this great storm was coming. P Peter, who made all sorts of mistakes, following the resurrection, everything changed for him. What changed for him is that he knew that this earth, nothing here, this, this life, I mean, it, it matters, but if your world on this planet and your lifetime begins to crumble... For those who are in Christ, our hope is in, is in him and is in our next life. And Peter says, who are protected by the power of God through faith. And he's saying to this, to people who would be thrown to the savage dogs, who would be burned at the stake, Peter himself would be executed for his testimony of the Lord. They were going to crucify him, and he pleaded with them not to crucify him. He did not find himself worthy to be executed in the same way his Lord was. And so they executed him upside down. This is powerful. And yet he says, who's protected? If you'll turn with me, I told you, I warned you. So go back to Matthew, but this time chapter 10. And in chapter 10, verse 26, Jesus is teaching, he says, therefore, do not fear them. 
For there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What will I tell you in the what I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are numbered. And a bunch of guys during the last service started rubbing their hands through their hair. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Peter again was there when Jesus spoke this. So Peter understood the security in Christ. This week... um, over the years, I've mentioned a man for the last couple of years. He's a he's the sergeant of the sniper element on the Escondido SWAT team. Three years ago, his wife was killed in a tragic accident. Her tractor tipped over. Uh, since then, this guy's faith has uh, just grown exponentially. He is just a different guy. And he always was a believer, but somehow through this tragedy, it, 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 it blossomed his his relationship with the Lord like most suffering will do. And so he really spearheaded me to kind of lead a, a department-wide trip um, to Israel. And Israel's been in the news. And so we've had one meeting. We're going to have a second meeting trying to, with, the, with the law enforcement agency about this trip. And I was in his office this week, and he's sort of talking. He's like, will you address, make sure to address the, uh, the, the concerns that people might be having? I'm like, are you saying about being framed to travel to Israel while like there's a, a little skirmish going on? He's like, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. I'm like, oh yeah, it doesn't matter when you go to Israel. People are always freaked out. Like they, like people get nervous. And and I'm like, yeah, I'd be happy to talk with them to give them assurance. But 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 ultimately, like what what Jesus said is fear God. See, I could drop dead right now. Did it happen? And if I dropped dead, it would be because God took me. When my time runs out on this earth, it's not because I made a mistake or something happened or, oh, it's because God is sovereign. He's appointed my time. And I said, I'll be happy to give them assurances. I do feel like Israel's safe regardless of what's going on. And he leaned forward and he looked at me and he said, Fear not. 365 times in the Bible. I'm like, oh, brother, you've been dealing with fear? He's like, yeah, like the last three years with my wife died. I've got two little kids. I'm still a cop. I'm like, so you counted? He's like, 365 times. The Bible tells us to fear not. I didn't actually do the count. But I think the whole idea of fear, it has everything to do with how big is your God. See, God's big. God is sovereign. God's in control. And Peter begins his opening here by, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. Verse 5, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. I've become all the more convinced in this last couple of weeks studying these verses that we have... As Christians, absolutely nothing to complain about, nothing to grumble about. We have everything to be thankful for. We have everything to rejoice over. Gratitude should flow out from our hearts. And so for the person who comes to church for the first time as not a believer, I identify with that because I didn't really start coming to church until much later. And, and this whole singing stuff is just weird. I mean, not now, but this is my, my back then. But see, that when I, when I came to trust in God and believe in him, I began to grow and understand all of the things that he's done on my behalf. How great, how infinite, how awesome, how almighty he is. And the more that I get to know him, all I want to do is praise him. And this is the heart behind Peter's message here in 1 Peter. It's not about what's going on in this world. It's about everything that's happening in the other world. And if you're here today, if you're alive, if you're a Christian, 
Whatever is happening for us as Christians, God is bigger and He has a purpose for whatever suffering you may be enduring. So I'm going to end a little bit differently. I'd like all of us to stand. And I'm going to read this passage again in the New Living Translation as a prayer. The worship team will come forward, let you guys stretch out your legs. So let's pray. I've made some modifications to make it practical or more geared towards us. The New Living Translation, 1 Peter, as a prayer. All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is by His great mercy that we have been born again because God raised Jesus from the dead. Now we who live with great expectation and we have a priceless inheritance, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for us, pure and undefiled beyond the reach of change and decay. And through faith, God is protecting us by His power until we receive this salvation, which is ready to be revealed on the last day for all to see. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this great hope we have in Christ. Father, I pray for each person here, for those that maybe don't know you or are unsure about their position with you. Father, I pray that you would help those who haven't trusted to respond to the gospel with faith, that they would believe, that they would trust in you and that they would begin their journey knowing and learning about you. And Father, for those of us who know you as Savior, I pray, Father, that you would continue um, the work that you started in our lives, that we would grow in our understanding of you. We thank you, Lord, for your great mercy, your great love. Lord, you are awesome. I pray, Father, that you would help us to be worshipers of you. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.